Hey everyone and welcome back to another book podcast. You may be surprised to hear from me this week as we usually only release a podcast every fortnight but we simply couldn't pass up the opportunity to speak to one of our absolutely brilliant authors Nikki Marmory about her incredible novel Lilith that is officially out today. I honestly don't know where to begin with this book. I've thought about it probably every day since I first read the manuscript. Lauren, one of our fabulous commissioning editors, sent it around to all of us here at Legend Times during the summer last year, and we all instantly fell in love with Lilith. Her tenacity, her wit, her purpose, and above all, her voice, and the voice that she gives to all the women throughout the novel that have been wronged by religion and myth. Before we begin the episode, a huge thank you to WF Howes, who have kindly provided the first chapter of the Lilith audiobook, which is included at the end of this episode. And another huge thank you to Lauren, who has kindly interviewed Nikki for this episode and who introduced all of us here at Legend to Nikki's wonderful novel. Enjoy the episode! As per usual, a quick disclaimer. Despite any connections to the publishing industry, all opinions on books and biscuits are completely our own here at Another Book Podcast. So let's dive into this week's episode. Okay, well, here we go. So, um... My name is Lauren. I'm the commissioning editor for Legend Press, and I'm joined by the lovely Nikki Marmory. And um, thank you for taking the time. Really do appreciate it. Um, so we are going to dive right in. And um, your second novel, Lilith, is coming out very soon. We have been shouting about it from the rooftop, so I'm sure people have heard of it. It is, well, incredible to say the least, but um, I will try and not gush too much and completely boycott this whole (laughs) chat. Um, So I think what I would really love to... It's just hear from you, Nikki, and and what... um, where did the idea, let's start at the very beginning, mm-hmm. where did the idea for Lilith come from? It's actually quite uh, difficult to um, pinpoint because I think it is the result of things that I've been thinking about for my entire life. Um, I'm fascinated by religion, I'm fascinated by ancient history and I'm fascinated by uh, the position of women and the representation of women. Um, in both of those things. And I think it kind of grew from this sort of increasingly, this increasing sense of unease that I had about how exclusively masculine um, world religions often are. And particularly, I was thinking about the religion uh, of the country that I was brought up in, uh, Christianity, and the world that that I grew up in. And it kind of became more obvious to me as I got older and particularly after I had children and that sort of realisation of how sort of uh, unappreciated motherhood is, um, how it's taken for granted, the the things that women do, the extraordinary thing that women do to bring life into the world, how, um, how disrespected it often is and I saw a link between that and this uh, this world in which we have a god 
who is a father. There's no mother, there's just a father. He creates life on his own. Um, and I think I just find that idea really insulting. And that is what... Um, it's those sort of ideas that were percolating in my head for a long time that started it. Um, and I think I saw the idea of Lilith as a way into that story, a way to explore it, to explore the loss of women's equality, to explore the loss of the ancient mother figure who was there, you know, in the Judeo-Christian uh, tradition. She was there um, at various points uh, at the beginning. Um, and she was gradually erased out of it for, for you know, reasons of the, you know, the, the, the power um, dynamic of people in the real world. So that's, that's it in a nutshell. Mm. <laughs> it's quite a complicated genesis. Um, but essentially, I wanted to explore this sort of demotion of women, this idea that uh, women weren't equal, which kind of emerged at the dawn of patriarchy. And that's not something, of course, that, um, that was invented by the Judeo-Christian world, but it is very much reflected in the Bible. And that's really what I wanted to look at. Mm, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sat here just nodding along <laughs> with everything you're saying because it um, is, for me, one of those things that, you know, as I was reading, and it was obviously making me think and reflect, and, and it was all making sense. And, you, and then you start to question, you mm. know. And, and and I think it will resonate with readers in lots of different ways. Um you know, male, female, or whether they're parents or not, you know, I really do think that what you are saying holds an awful lot of truth and it, it makes you um, just take a step back and and review, you know, mm. I was thinking about what I was taught, how I was brought up, you know, how I choose to live life and, and other women around me and how they are portrayed and, you know, then... Um, you can look into different industries, you can look into celebrity worlds, you can look at, you know, the the gender gap, you can look at all of these different levels of this simmering sense of um, being inferior. And I guess, and it's where that has come from and why we accept it. Yes, I mean, that's very much it. You know, it makes, you know, the time that, you know, much of the Bible was written, you know, most of, of the Old Testament was written throughout the, the first millennium BC, of course, you know, that's completely normal for that time and place in history. Um, and the people who wrote it, of course, were men, um, very patriarchal men. So it makes sense. Um, but what sort of infuriates me, really, is how we still have these notions today and how they are still used to sort of justify um, male supremacy on some levels, how they are used to justify sort of, you know, these these ideas that we have that are still here in the modern world, mm -hmm. you know, in which you can see in the opening chapters of Genesis, you know, the story of, of, of um, Adam and Eve, you know, which is where my book begins, you know, Eve reaching for wisdom and being punished, um, and this idea that women are treacherous and, and gullible and prone to evil and they're unfit to lead, you know, all of these ideas that are propounded in this incredibly powerful book you know, we still see them today, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you still see these sort of ideas being applied to women who 
who are in politics, you know, women who, who do want to lead. And you have the same things sort of being said about them, um, being inferred about them. It's much more subtle today, uh -huh. but it's the same ideas. And so I think the, um, you know, the ways in which I think it's very difficult for us today to sort of realise how ingrained in our culture it is. You know, it's not that long ago that people, that the majority of people, um, you know, in the West, um, believe these ideas as fact. It's really not that long ago. You know, when um, Charles Darwin um, published his theory of evolution, people were absolutely horrified, you know, this idea that, uh, he, that humans had evolved, that they weren't sort of created by God. People did believe this as fact for a very, very long time. And, um, you know, these I this, this idea of male supremacy, which is absolutely there at the beginning of um, Genesis, um, has been used, you know, to, to, to justify keeping women in their place for a very long time. Um, and I think it's time to put that out of the window. Absolutely. Mm. I think the, the wonderful thing about the, the book, though, is that it is not... Um, to put it bluntly, it's not just man bashing. <laughs> it's not this angry rant about, uh, you know, how terrible all men are and how, you know, women need to rise up. However, it is a beautiful balance of this call to arms, really, mm. I think, for all readers um, and female empowerment. And there's nothing wrong with that. No. No, and I, I'm, I'm glad, uh, you know, you, you said there's no <laughs> man bashing in it, um, because there, there are some very bad men in the book, um, mm -hmm. um, but there are also some very good men. And, you know, the opposite of patriarchy, in my opinion, shouldn't be matriarchy. Mm. The whole point is that there should not be a hierarchy between the sexes, because that is damaging. You know, you need um, both sexes, uh, you know, to create new life. Mm -hmm. That's just... Yeah. you know that, that, that that's a biological fact and you know those two sexes uh, should be uh, equal and in harmony um one is not you know above the other and so that's kind of the the, the point of the book what what we're sort of hoping to get to is not you know women being in charge although frankly they should uh, have a go at it for well, a few thousand years to, 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 <laughs> to make see. up for what's happened um but no the, the goal is not uh, is not a matriarchy the goal um is what um uh, rihanna eisler the writer calls um gilany which is a sort of a state of equality between the sexes which would be much more um enjoyable for everyone mm -hmm. you know i don't think you know there are many men who don't who don't gain from that sort of uber patriarchal um sort of setup um so you know and there are as many stereotypes about the way you know men should behave you know in a patriarchal system as there are about women and they're very damaging um to men as well um as well as women so so yes it's 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 not intended to be man bashing mm -hmm. <laughs> it is intended to promote the idea that we would all be better off uh, in a state of harmony mm -hmm. uh, and uh, sort of mutual cooperation rather than sort of uh, hierarchy and, and mm. dominance. Mm. I don't. I don't want to spoil 
the book for anybody um, who hasn't read it. But um, when it comes down to the plot itself and, and the writing, I know an awful lot of research would have gone into it. Um, was there... I felt like I'd learnt an awful lot as well. So many sort of holes in my knowledge that, you know, I thought I knew, but, I mean, I didn't. Mm. Um, so... I'm interested, just from a research kind of point of view, was there anything that surprised you when you were diving into this? Um, well, literally everything. Um, I <laughs> kind of, I think I had heard of the idea of, um, of you know, the wife of God before. I don't think I had looked too deeply into it, so I didn't know, for example, um, you know, that for so for much uh, of history she was worshipped alongside Yahweh you know at the temple of Jerusalem no less at some points I had no idea that she's still there you know throughout the bible references to the to the queen of heaven uh, throughout the bible she is the sort of source of um, Jeremiah's fury in the book of Jeremiah he can't quite uh, get his head around the fact that the women of Jerusalem still insist on worshipping her um, so I had no I had no idea about that, which was absolutely fascinating to me. Um, I had, and I, you know, I, when I approached this book and I, I sort of, you know, wanted to sort of come at it through the myth of Lilith, I knew of uh, Lilith as a, in the, in, as a as a Jewish demoness, this idea that she was the first wife of Adam. I hadn't realised how far back her her history goes. You know, she is perhaps the oldest sort of archetype in, in world myth. You know, she um, first appears in a uh, Sumerian myth, you know, from the third millennium BC. Um, she is really incredibly ancient. Um, and I hadn't realised how ubiquitous that, um, that archetype is, how she sort of appears um, sort of throughout history and different cultures. And she sort of takes with her these same... Um, elements each time you know this this uh, this idea that she preys on pregnant women and, and infants that uh -huh. she seduces men in their sleep that uh -huh. she's responsible for wet dreams um that she's associated with snakes you know all of these things pop up sort of time and time again in all the cultures of the of western asia and um eastern mediterranean which is absolutely fascinating uh -huh. um and sort of even to the point actually where she she entered um european folklore as Melusine, who is this sort of figure who appears in lots of uh, European fairy tales as this sort of um, shape-shifting, um, snake-tailed woman who conceals her, who conceals her sort of true persona. Um, but she's actually very benevolent, so she has this sort of new aspect to her. And it's as um, Melusine that she actually appears on every single uh, Starbucks cup. So the logo of, of Starbucks I is, is Melusine, who is... Uh, descended from Lilith. So that's absolutely fascinating. And the, the importance of this, this archetype, often to women, um, because of this aspect of childbirth and the fear of, of, of something happening to, you, to your child, um, these sort of betray these very, very sort of ancient fears that women rightly had about, about childbirth and, you know, the fear of something happening to their child because it was so common. Mm -hmm. um, so that 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 was uh, fascinating to me, um, and a sort of a joy to unearth, really. Mm. It, it, it must have been a, like utter joy because it's unpacking an awful lot of. Well, like I, I didn't know that. I didn't know. Yeah, that. Didn't it was know kind that. of like that. The yeah. whole, oh my god, I yeah. didn't know that. <laughs> um, and that's before even sort of you know I got to the 
um, the sort of the, the stories of early Christianity, which which were absolutely fascinating to me. You know, we we we've inherited this very orthodox view. You know, this 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 sort of idea that uh, the stories of early Christianity, you know, are this way. But of course, of course, like everything, they're the result of editing and they're the result of someone choosing what goes in and what doesn't go in. Mm-hmm. So discovering what didn't go on, go in was also fascinating. And uh, and it won't be at all surprising to people to learn that the bits that didn't go in were the bits where women uh, had power or were seeking <laughs> or asserting their divinity in some way. Um, so that's fascinating to me, to learn about these sort of early uh, Christian communities who prayed to the mother, not to the father. Mm-hmm. Um, the sort of Gnostic Gospels, which are these Gospels which 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 give a, uncovered um, in 1945 in Egypt, which give a completely different sort of understanding of, of early Christianity, um, and these idea these sort of sects were declared heretical in about the third um, century AD, and you know they portray Mary Magdalene as this hugely important figure, so wow. that was absolutely fascinating to me um, because it seems to me that sort of throughout history, the same thing keeps happening. Sort of any attempt by women to sort of assert their understanding of spirituality, their divinity, their claims to uh, sort of an equal uh, sort of spiritual life with men get stamped down. Mm. And what, what is declared orthodox is, is the man's version. And what is declared heretical is the woman's version. Mm-hmm. And so it seemed to me that this just kept happening. Mm-hmm. The same thing over and over again for millennia. Mm. Absolutely. I think the um, takeaway, I just would like people to simply question. Exactly, yes. I think we don't question enough. I mean, of course, you know, for many years, you would be burned (laughs) for questioning. (laughs) There's a very good reason for that. Um, But yes, you should question everything. And, uh, you know, why are things the way they are? Because they suit people in power is the usual answer. Um, exactly. Who gains, who loses. Exactly. You know, who, who benefits from, from, you know, the stories that are being told and, and who loses? Mm. That's sort of the, the question to sort of ask again and again, I think. Definitely. And I, th- I think, as I say, that sort of trickles down into, I mean, whether you work in healthcare, whether you work in politics, for, you know, whatever you then, and it's, it's how you are then, um, or how you enter that, that industry and how you work and how you view yourself and you know and I when it comes to even um motherhood you know I think that's that's a huge part of well the takeaway that I took from the book of you know where does life come from you know hang on hang on a second yeah (laughs) who's bringing life into this world and why when that is the ultimate power Mm. in my eyes is it so um in some people you know sort of shameful or or hidden Mm. away or kind of um the fear factor yes rather than you know a beautiful thing it's something to be well we're, we're punished for hence why we have to go through it yes Yes, I mean that, that that sort of that idea, which of course is 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 in Genesis, the idea that um, birth should be a punishment for women, is so hideous um, to me. Um, it, I just find it, it extraordinary uh, that you know that that has had such currency for so long. It's it's so it's so hideous, you know. 
bringing uh, bringing a child into the world, you know, is an extraordinary thing. It's bloody painful, um, <laughs> but it's an extraordinary thing, um, which should be honoured, uh, you know, and of course was you know, in much of the ancient world until this idea came along that women were just vessels, you know, that mm. men generated life alone. Uh, and, you know, they, you know, they, they'll plant a seed in a woman. A woman mm. is, is just a mere vessel to, to, you know, even the language we still use today when we talk about pregnancy, to carry a pregnancy. You know, a woman is not carrying a pregnancy. She mm. is physically creating <laughs> a new human from every part of her body every day you know, the, from some very unpromising material, you know. Um, that's what's happening during a pregnancy. She is not carrying a pregnancy. So all these sort of very ancient ideas um, are still with us mm. and they're very damaging to women still. Absolutely. I think you're right. You, what you said, um, holding currency. Mm. It's true. I think only now is the conversation starting to change in my opinion, you know, amongst, you know, my circle of friends, my, you know, age group, my, you know, I think, as people start to, you know, go through something like motherhood, mm. uh, pregnancy and, and becoming a parent and and just then the system around that. So even not, not even so much the process, but the, the actual paperwork, you know, everything yes. around it that is still geared towards the man. Still, it's still completely, you know, even the, you know, the ultimate female experience of giving birth is still so sort of seen in our culture through man's eyes, you know, and I think it sort of struck me when you see, um, you know, for example, in the UK, when you when when uh, a member of the royal family gives birth and she has to come out and have this photo taken with her baby after she's just been through the most traumatic experience of her life, you know, that no one is thinking about that from the woman's point of view. It's all from the man's point of view. You know, she has to have her makeup done. Mm -hmm. She has to look good. She's literally been through a horrific experience, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and no one should be taking photos of no. her. And they should, you know, leave her alone to take her baby home and get yeah. used to being a mother. Exactly. You know, everything is still so much from, you know, the man's point of view that, um, and, and that's not surprising. You know, this is this is this right. thousands of years old, these notions, um, and it will take a really, really long exactly. time to change them. And as we say, this isn't simply a attack on men. It's no, like you say, understandably, you know, through all of these years of editing and you mm. know, written by you know man, um, that these sorts of um, beliefs have been accepted. Yes. So it's simply to question. And to talk and to perhaps view something in a slightly different way. Yes, it's, it's, it's the problem is not, the problem is the power dynamic. The problem is the, the prioritisation prior, priorita priorita mm -hmm. of everything male over the female. That's the problem. Mm. Um, and I think sometimes men are not even aware of the degree to which this happens because mm. they are used to being the default human. I don't think they even notice a lot of the time. No. I don't think they notice that that so much uh, of our modern world has been geared to men rather than the women. They don't. They don't see it a lot of the time. Um, and you know, yes, once you start seeing it, it's very hard. It's very hard not to see mm -hmm. it. Exactly, which is fantastic <laughs> in a way because then you start to really question. Um, but no, I think that's all it is. It's just a conversation. And I think there are plenty of, of men who would happily agree. You know, yes. it is not just yeah. them and us type 
conversation. Um, and as you say, when there is this equality, everybody benefits. Every, you yes. know, where's the... Because there will be things that a woman can do that a man, you know, can't and, you know, so on. And I think, you know, childbirth, <laughs> you yeah. know, as an example. But you start to think about um, how that can benefit rather than um, being this battle. Yes. Yeah. It's... Um, and I think men do benefit from um, sort of some of the advances that, that, that women have sort of fought for and won, you know, sort of thinking particularly about, um, you know, the right, uh, you know, to maternity rights, um, you know, which have, um, you know, in some parts of the world enabled men to take more time off work and spend time with their children. You know, men of, of uh, you know, my generation have much much better relationships with their children than mm. you know our father's generation and that is to their benefit you know i can't think of a single man who 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 would say otherwise you know that they you know don't enjoy the fact that they have much better they're much closer to their children often mm. and have better relationships with them um and that is a consequence of you know women um it being in the workplace more so you know there are there are benefits for men um, as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, thinking about the research and and um, the writing, I would say this is your second novel. Yes. So for your um, your first novel, for on on wilder seas, um, did you? I mean, obviously, for me, there's still the similar themes between the novels yes. but did the research did the process was it, was it very different yes it was completely different um, <laughs> partly because of covid um so i wrote this book um mostly uh during the sort of really quite intense lockdown um periods um so i had to do it in a completely different way you know when i wrote on wilder seas i used a lot of um manuscripts and really old books and the only place that i could do that was the british library so um you know i spent a lot of time there you know and it's such a joy to write there because you can you know you'll be researching something and you'll come across uh, you know sort of a description of a, a, a manuscript or a really ancient book or an ancient map that you want to consult and you type it into the computer and you know 40 minutes later they bring it to you and it might be like the only copy in the entire world so <laughs> that is phenomenal that is so amazing um and wonderful but of course i couldn't go to the library mm. um so i i was lucky that a lot of the sort of texts that i needed to use for research were available online um so you know a large part of the book you know is is based on the bible um so that's you know no problem to find find the copy, um, and um, sort of other texts. So for example, the Gnostic Gospels, which sort of play a part in the in the book, um, they're very easy to get hold of online um, and in print, and sort of a lot of the other sort of resources that I used. So that was different. I was doing it all from home, and the, but the, the sort of major difference is I had three children homeschooling at the same time mm. and these are not uh, these are not sort of ideal conditions for writing um you know at one point i had a six-year-old sitting next to me crying while i was sort of tr desperately trying to do something um these are not these are not the conditions that hemingway ever wrote in no. um, or tolstoy <laughs> or dickens uh, dickens maybe he probably had loads of children around um so um 
that was really difficult. So what I started to do was actually uh, just write very early in the morning before anyone got up. So I would sort of do, and I didn't aim very high. I sort of aimed to do 500 words a day. So I would do that from literally from my bed. I wouldn't even get out of bed. I would just sort of do it in the first sort of hour or so of the day. Um, and then that would make me feel more relaxed about the fact that for the rest of the day, anything could happen. Mm. You know, I would be chasing children around the house, trying to get them to do, to do their work or whatever. Um, and if I did have time, I would then research during the day. So I had to, yes, I had to write it in a completely different way. Um, but you know, 500 words a day is is is. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do the maths in my head now. <laughs> you can, you can get a whole first draft, you know, in less time probably than you think. It is, it's amazing, and just sort of like you know, bit by bit chipping away at it. Um, yeah, it can be done. Yeah, I mean, and those are extreme. They were extreme. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's a challenge. And I, I think as well, that sort of, um, I'm not sure I could have written this book in a normal sort of period, because I think that isolation and that sort of really strange separation from the real world uh, is sort of uh, part of the book, really, mm. because I think I needed that sort of separation to sort of, you know, be thinking about these sort of really big ideas and um, quite, you know, complicated ideas as well I needed that separation I think I don't think I could have I don't think it would be the same book if I'd written it mm. sort of you know going out and about and meeting people That's and good point. Yeah. yeah no I can I can see that definitely have there been um obviously there's 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 lots of books out there and I know that you would have read an awful lot of um fiction as well you know alongside would you say any any books in particular that really stand out to you in in that whether or not you really enjoyed them and appreciate what mm. they are doing or that you were trying to do a similar yeah. um, thing. Yes, I read a lot. I read a lot of books that sort of did similar things that sort of looked at, uh, that sort of either took the Bible as their source material um, or that were about sort of biblical figures in some way. Um, and particularly, actually, there's, there's sort of a section in the book um, where we come to the sort of uh, Roman Judea and we meet uh, Mary Magdalene, and in her past, she has this relationship with this rather extraordinary prophet called Yeshua. So, who is Jesus? So, it, that was really difficult, and um, I wanted to see how other people approached that very difficult idea. And so there are some absolutely brilliant books that um, that I read on that theme, um, sort of thinking now about them. It's, it's Naomi Alderman's um, Liar's Gospel, which is a brilliant book. Um, Philip Pullman uh, wrote, um, uh, I'm going to get this wrong, <laughs> it's The Good Man Jesus and The, Sc and the Scoundrel Christ, um, which is a really humane book about uh, sort of Jesus as, as a human, as a, as, as a historical figure. Um, and uh, Jose Saramago wrote an absolutely brilliant book, which I just absolutely loved. It was so funny and sort of wise uh, and, and absurd. Uh, I love, I love his, uh, I, I love his book. So yes, I read a lot of books like that, and I read um, uh, uh, the Red Tent, Anita mm. Diamond's uh, Red Tent, which is a phenomenal book, sort of looking at um, the biblical story of Dinah. Um, uh, so yes, I, 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 I read and enjoyed some absolutely amazing um, sort of books based on, on the Bible. Um, and I think the best, you know, the, the, the best of those are those that do 
treat those stories as myth, you know, because, you know, they are, you know, myth and religion are the same thing, just with some distance, you know, the ancient Greeks didn't think of their, you know, they didn't, that was their religion, they didn't think of it as myth, they thought of it as, as their religion. Um, and in religion, you know, the stories that we sort of see in the Bible are, you know, especially in the sort of the beginning of the Old Testament are very, very mythical and they come from, many of them come from much earlier and from different places, many of them from ancient Sumer um, and they are sort of pretty much the same, you know, exactly the same myths, uh, you know, from, from other times and places. Um, so yes, they, they, those books that I enjoyed most are those that sort of really sort of look in, lean into that idea mm. of religion as myth mm. and myth as religion. Yeah, fascinating debate as well. Mm. Would you? Is there one in particular, whether or not it's it's um, you know related to Lilith, favorite book of the last year? My favorite book of the last year is similar to Lilith in theme. And it's The Book of Eve by Meg Clothier. I absolutely loved this book. I mean, it's very different to Lilith in that, um, you know, it's much more historical. Um, it's set in, well, it's, it's actually quite ambiguous about where it's set, but, uh, you know, to the reader, the reader kind of grasps that it's, it's Renaissance Florence. And it, it's a kind of, it, it's, it's very um, similar to The Name of the Rose, actually, mm -hmm. in some ways, which is another of my favourite books of all time, Alberto Eco's. Name of the Rose. So it's set in a, a sort of a convent library where this sort of extraordinary book arrives and it um, seems to have some sort of magical powers and then the nuns uh, find themselves in a position where they need to protect this book and there's a very uh, sort of uh, unpleasant monk <laughs> who comes looking for it. Um, and when I read it, I was sort of quite blown away by the way in which um, uh, uh, sort of McClothier and I were obviously thinking about very similar things yeah. the idea of this religion you know about you know the father and the son and the missing mother sort of that's a really mm. really important part of her book um so I, I absolutely loved it it really struck a chord with me um and it's just a brilliant brilliant story as well and it also makes you think about you know the stories that you've been told you know what's missing from them uh, who is missing from them and why uh, uh it's it's absolutely brilliant i loved mm. it and i think that's for me the the best thing about fiction it's it's getting that conversation going and and educating you while entertaining you yes yeah i mean the best books make you immediately reach for your google mm -hmm. uh, they Absolutely. immediately sort of make you sort of immediately order four or five uh, non-fiction books that you need yeah. to read immediately <laughs> um you know they, they always the books that i enjoy most always sort of send me this sort of scurrying into a sort of a research uh, spiral mm. um and that's absolutely true of Meg, of Meg Clothier's book. It will make you want to sort of learn more. Mm -hmm. um, yes, I can't remember the last time I read a book and sort of didn't, <laughs> didn't want to sort of yeah. drop everything exactly. and uh, yeah, immediately learn everything about that topic. Exactly. And there's so many books out there to choose from as well. Mm. It's, it's, there's just not enough hours in the day to fit it all in because yeah. like you say it one spirals off into another and you think oh let me just check oh actually yeah. I've heard of this book let me <laughs> yeah. have a look at that you know um and I think the one of the wonderful things that we've seen is um the support for your book um before it's even published you know we've had so many wonderful 
endorsements, the praise. People are so excited for Lilith. And I think that's one of the... Working in publishing, that's that's a great thing about publishing. It's connecting mm. minds. Yes. Um, it is, and it's so, it's so extraordinary to me that people... You know, it's a big effort to read a book. I'm really slow. It can take me, like, a week. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> so it's a big effort to read a book and uh, to review it, and it's just... It's, it's, it's so lovely that, 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 that writers do that for each other. It's yeah. a really nice thing. Yeah. Has, has that been... I mean, it's a whole other part to the role I think as a mm. writer isn't it it's that connection with other writers and... yes and I think you need, you, need, you need it because writing is really lonely you know you're on your own or if you've got your children sitting next to you <laughs> <laughs> but you're on your own a lot of the time um, and many writers are quite sort of you know they like they, you know they like being on their own um, but you also do need you know you you need every now and again to break out and mm. talk to another human being yes. um, <laughs> so it is it's really nice that sort of um that companionship with other with other authors or sort of reaching out to other authors and uh, sort of getting to know them is is, is a really nice part mm. of the process yeah absolutely it's it's like minds or often not like minds yes. and it's still yeah rewarding you know that's what yeah that's the world though in a nutshell isn't it not everybody is mm. the same not everybody's writing about the same thing yeah you still learn something and i think it's so important still to meet people in person you know it's very difficult to um you know i've met uh, met sort of uh, lots of people online um which is really lovely but when you meet them in person you get a much better sort of sense of of of, uh, of them as a human being and um you know i think we still we we crave that connection as Definitely. humans. That's something lockdown certainly taught mm. me, you know. Um, and we are thankfully all recovering. In you know, events are back and mm. bookshops are open again, and and you can connect with people. And um, and the and, and the publishing industry, you know, will continue. That there's there's different books, different formats, different audiences all the time. Mm. Um, just to to finish up, and I wanted to ask you about the public publishing industry. Mm. Is there, um, as a writer, is there anything? What what's what's your favorite sort of part, um, or about you know favorite thing about publishing the publishing industry, or what do you think could be improved? Well, I think I mean the, the my favorite bit is is kind of the the obvious. <laughs> Point, which is that you get to see your book <laughs> made, great. which is amazing. You know, it takes so many people to make a book, and it's so um, extraordinary to see you know all of these incredibly talented people working on your book. It's it, you know this idea that sort of started in your head one day that you just couldn't sort of let go of, and then and then suddenly it's a thing, and other people are sort of doing new things with it and you know illustrating it and editing it and and marketing it and you know it's it's incredible and then um you know that's such a privilege because obviously you couldn't do it on your own mm-hmm. um so that's it's a wonderful thing and um I'm very 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 grateful uh, to legend times for having produced this absolutely beautiful version of this very strange idea that started in my head <laughs> so that's definitely the best bit um and i think the difficult bit is is you know writers 
quite a book. And then at some point, they suddenly realise that people are going to read it, which is absolutely horrifying. Mm. Um, <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> you suddenly think, oh, my God, I'm not sure I expected people to read it. Um, and that's really exposing, obviously. Mm. Um, and, of course, you have to get used to it. Um, but it can be very difficult. You know, I think... Um, you expect people, you know, you expect that not everyone's going to like your book. Obviously, you know, books aren't for everyone. And in fact, one of my favourite pastimes is looking up the one star reviews for mm -hmm. um, Hilary Mantel's books, because that kind of reminds me that, honestly, <laughs> some people are just never going to be pleased. You know, exactly. if you can't like Wolf Hall, then, you know, mm -hmm. what hope is there? <laughs> so, you know, your book isn't going to be liked by everyone and that's absolutely fine. But I think sometimes there is criticism that is, that is very personal um, and that is very uh, difficult to deal with and, and sort of unwarranted. Mm. Um, so I think that's the, that's the most difficult bit. I don't know how you prepare for that because you have to accept that your book goes out into the world and you have to... Uh, um, that's, that's, that's part of the deal. Um, I guess you just have to... Um, get a thicker skin, <laughs> which I suppose happens, you know, with more experience. It is difficult, and that's, you know, a big reason I could be a writer. Mm. You know, I think it is, this is your baby, this is something that you have completely grown, you know, developed, gone back to, edited mm. yourself, you know, um, critiqued, mm. you know, I'm sure. Many, many times, sort of, yeah, second-guessed no yourself, after. you know. Yeah, yeah. Then yourself, you know. So then to what? Just put that out there in yeah. the world? And yeah. that's terrifying. Yeah. Yes, and I think it's, as we were, kind of what you were saying in terms of, you know, the great part about the whole process was this interpretation, you know, the, the design of the cover designer, mm. Sarah, you know, Sarah Whittaker, who designed the, the most stunning cover for Lilith. That was her interpretation of the novel. Yes, and, yeah, and it completely blew me away when I first saw it because I thought, oh, my God, yes, that is it. There's no way I could have described that. No, exactly. <laughs> There's no way I would have no. come up with that. But, yes, that is it. That's exactly yeah. it. Exactly. And it's amazing. You know, and, and then that goes hand in hand with mm. how the book is received. It's, in, yes. it's different interpretations that everybody is allowed yes. to have their yes. take and their opinion and affect different people because we are all made up of so many different things of, you know, our you know upbringing and our thoughts and opinions and views yes. and things and we, we are allowed that but that does not make it easier no. for the writer so I do completely feel yeah. for you and I think you like to think that if perhaps somebody doesn't understand or doesn't agree it's a conversation yes okay. yeah I mean I think you know from my I read a lot of books you know, most of the time I really, really like them because I don't sort of set out to read books I don't mm -hmm. think I'm going to like. Um, but I think you've got to engage with the book um, in good faith. You've got to put aside any expectations of how you would have written the book mm. if you wrote that book mm. and engage with it, with what the author has set out to do. You've got to sort of appreciate the immense amount of time that, that has gone into you know, someone choosing to do it that way. It's not like they just pluck that out of thin air. Mm -hmm. You know, that would have come as the result of, you know, long uh, and deep thought. So I think that's the key thing. I think when you engage with other people's books, you've got to do it in good faith and, and show an understanding of the level of time and care that they have mm -hmm. put into mm -hmm. creating it. Mm -hmm. And that 
goes for well all art doesn't it yes you know it's 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 just an appreciation yes Um, you don't have to like it but you should engage with it in a sort of a a respectful way exactly i really do think um readers will with Lilith. Mm. i just do i think as i say whoever the reader is wherever they are from um whatever their like we say you know the their their opinions are i think there is something to be taken from lilith and just you know looked at turned over analyzed and just perhaps get a bit of a conversation going about and i think for me i think that's a wonderful thing a novel can Mm. achieve just to get people talking yes yeah i hope so perhaps open your mind to something you haven't thought about exactly exactly and that's sort of i suppose the 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 sort of main takeaway that i hope people do do get from this book there's more than one way of thinking about something and other ways of looking at things Mm -hmm. are okay (laughs) okay and sometimes much needed (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) yeah exactly the chocolate <laughs> pomegranate chocolate here okay so what 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 do you think i really like that mm-hmm. i really like dark chocolate i really like the the hint of pomegranate is really nice i'm i'm going i'm going nine oh okay, yeah nine. i'm going nine i would completely yeah. agree it's not sickly sweet no um and it's it's and oh, that's what i love about you know dark chocolate that has these different flavours it's just these little hints of sea salt or orange or you know pomegranate in this case and it just doesn't overpower and it's just really quite moorish it's actually quite you know normally for me I'm like a couple of squares of dark and then you know I'm good but I could I could polish that off yeah I like I like a dark chocolate with a mint tea that's uh, that's my pairing Mm. (laughs) because (laughs) because I'm really exciting no that's that's like heaven But yeah, and it's fair trade, which yeah, is fantastic. Exactly. Yeah, I, I really like that. Wonderful. I think I think Lilith would approve of that. Mm-hmm. I, think she, <laughs> I think she would be a fan. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you so much, Nikki, for joining um, our podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Lauren. And that's all for this week, which is such a shame because I could honestly listen to Nikki talk about history, myths, and books all day. A huge, huge thank you to Nikki for not only being on the podcast, but also for sharing Lilith with us. It's been such a dream to work on such a fantastic book. And if you haven't already, run over to Amazon or Waterstones or wherever you get your books and order a copy of Lilith now. I promise you, you won't regret it. Thank you all for listening. And as always, if you share our episodes on social media, don't forget to tag us at legend underscore times on Instagram and at legend underscore times underscore on Twitter. We hope you enjoy the first chapter of the Lilith audiobook, which will play shortly. And until next week, have a great Monday, everyone. For women everywhere, be your own gods. Your mother commands it. Lady Lilith Of Adam's first wife, Lilith, it is told, the witch he loved before the gift of Eve, that ere the snakes her sweet tongue could deceive and her enchanted hair was the first gold. And still she sits, young while the earth is old, and subtly of herself contemplative, draws men to watch the bright net she can weave, till heart and body and life are in its hold. 
Dante Gabriel Rossetti. Part 1. Paradise. 4004 BC. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden, to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Genesis chapter 3 verse 22 to 24 in the beginning. At first, I loved him. How beautiful he was in those days. There he stood, legs planted wide in the rich soil of our paradise, hands on hips, his muscled arms firm and knotted as a young fig tree. His hair fell shining, raven-feathered to his shoulders. His dark eyes beckoned. The musty coupling scent of him unmoored me, he made me giddy, and I him, I suppose, at first. When did it start? It seemed to come out of the blue, but now I see the signs I brushed away, as ripples on the surface of a pool, sending them far from me, as if that would be the end of it. The fool I was. How could I not know they would come surging back a hundredfold? He started to have ideas. He watched me watering the grain fields with the rain I had stored that was plentiful and sufficient. If we dig here, he said, we can channel groundwater. We needn't wait for the rain. We will direct the water towards the wheat field and master it. I shall call it irrigation, and it will be good. As for your hoeing, he said, as I broke the ground one day, it is too slow. We shall hitch a curved and sharpened stick to an ox to bear the burden. I shall call it a plough. He nodded sagely, and it will be good. We shall tally our labour, he observed, as I weeded the garden. When there are more of us, I have a feeling there will be more of us, he winked. We shall exchange our work, surplus food, and so forth, with a worthy item as a symbol of its value. I shall call it money, and it will be good. Don't interrupt, Lilith, I'm talking. He paced the meadow, fretting. We will need records of the money. We shall make marks in wet clay, and those marks shall have meaning. When the clay is fired, the meaning will be set forever as if in stone. Like this? I showed him the marks I had carved on the rib bone of a goat, a calendar for marking the coming and going of the moon, the wax and wane of my own blood that tracked it. No, not like that. Not like that at all, he frowned. I shall call my marks writing. He was dissatisfied with the bounty we had. He must have more of it. So he experimented, crossing the various trees in our garden to create a new fruit. After he noticed how the creatures in our care multiplied, it was the same with the animals. We shall build fences, he mused. I shall separate the ram from the ewes and the boars from the sows. I shall permit the ram to know the ewe and the boar to know the sow. When I wish them to breed, 
This way I shall bring forth more rams and ewes and boars and sows as we require them. They were fine plans. I admired his ambition. Only that it changed us. Subsistence was no longer enough. Always he wanted more. Always he wanted to control. With the marks on his tablets, he became the law. See here? He pointed to his mystifying wedge shapes and arrows. This is how it must be. I could not argue with that, for he had not revealed the meaning of his marks. To me, they were as a sparrow's feet crisscrossing the clay in search of a worm. He became the owner of these innovations, at once in charge of them, and benefiting from them most. As he tallied our labour and assigned it a value for his money, he judged his work as higher in merit and necessity than mine. A strategic director, you might call him in these modern days. It suited him. The knowing arch of his brow, the forthright crossing of his strong arms, the way he nodded when he dispensed his edicts and orders. He was good at it. His final plan was the clincher, the deal-breaker, the world-changer. When there are more of us, he started one day, it had become his obsession, more of us. Though I wasn't sure where he thought they'd come from. We will need to protect ourselves from the others. He produced two small hard rocks, one reddish-brown, one grey, salvaged from the riverbed. We shall melt these metals. When they combine, they make a harder, stronger substance, which we will use to make swords and knives, axes and so forth. What will you call this new material? I asked to amuse myself. Bronze, he said, unsmiling. Naturally, I shall wield these weapons, for I am bigger and stronger than you, and I would protect you from harm. <laughs> Naturally. It made sense at first, whatever made him happy. I had no need for weapons. Let him have his sword and his plough, his writing tablets and money. I didn't look to the future. I lived happily in the here and now, rooted in the cycle of our daily lives. I tended my roses. I cared for the animals. I gathered the grain. I made clay pots to store our food. I made music to mark the rhythm of our lives. I beat a tambour to welcome the new moon. I danced for my own delight. One day I had been assured I would be the mother of all mankind, all in good time. I was in no rush. I had my own purpose, the secret, entrusted to me alone. Its gift was finer than rubies, better than gold. I cherished and nurtured it in my belly, for it was mine. The gift of our Holy Mother solely for me, the first woman. Nor did I mind his mania for progress, for I loved him. And after the smelting and the forging, the harvest and the grinding, the winnowing and the milling, the baking and the cooling, the music and the dancing, we would meet under the tree, the one from which we must not to eat. And we would roll upon the moss and laugh and kiss, and by all that is sacred and holy, he would plough me like a field of barley, and it was very good.' 